0: Welcome to Watchman on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, James Collins visits with guest Jack Fleming about the origins of life as described in the Bible, and Dr. Larry Spargimino shares what he believes is wrong with Calvinism. As we begin our time together, I want to encourage you to get a copy of our Prophetic Observer Newsletter. The Prophetic Observer is a publication of Southwest Radio Ministries that examines events which have prophetic significance. To the world, these situations might seem trivial or unimportant, but to the Christian, it shows God fulfilling His plan and purpose for mankind. In each issue of The Prophetic Observer, we examine topics or events that relate to the fulfillment of end-time prophecies. The Prophetic Observer has become one of our more popular features. Many of our listeners use these articles as a witnessing tool to friends and family or for church or home Bible studies. So sign up today and start receiving the Prophetic Observer monthly newsletter. 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And if you're a new listener to Watchman on the Wall, be sure and request your free new listener pack. The new listener pack includes some history about the ministry and a free gift. It's our way of saying welcome to Watchman on the Wall. Request your free new listener pack when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. The first chapters of Genesis continue to be a source of controversy to the modern world. The theory of evolution is completely at odds with the biblical account. However, scientific, geological, archaeological, and literary evidence shows that the biblical account is absolutely true. James Collins welcomes author Jack Fleming to discuss the pathways of the Creator.
1: The book of Genesis is about beginnings. The word Genesis, of course, means beginnings or origins. The first 11 chapters of Genesis contain the origin of the universe, the origin of order, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the atmosphere, the origin of life, the origin of man, the origin of marriage, the origin of evil, the origin of language, the origin of government, and the origin of nations. It is safe to say that what you believe about the first 11 chapters of Genesis greatly shapes how you view the world. Joining me on Watchmen on the Wall to discuss the book of Genesis is J. Newton Fleming, the author of the brand new book, The Pathways of the Creator. Jack, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on the show with me
2: today. Glad to be with you, James.
1: Well, before we talk about the pathways of the Creator, I'd like to take some time to get to know you a little better. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: I grew up in a normal country environment. My dad was a World War II veteran. He brought us from New York City. I was born there, and he brought my mother and I here to Arkansas, which was a shock to my mother and, of course, didn't really matter to me one way or the other.
1: That's like Green Acres going from New York City to Arkansas.
2: Exactly what it was like. (laughs) He actually started a chicken ranch here. With the idea that us boys would take over operating the chicken ranch, well, that was kind of a bad problem because my mother did most of the work, and she told him about three years later, get rid of the ranch or you'll be looking for somebody else. (laughs) So he got rid of the ranch. I grew up really kind of an ordinary life, average student, average ideals and average interests and things like this. I was a scout when I was younger, which a lot of us were out in this part of the country were, and I didn't go to college until after I was saved, actually. I spent a couple of years trying to go to college, but then I spent the rest of the time from my college years up until my 30th birthday or so that I, I just worked in the trades as a carpenter or a surveyor or an engineering assistant or something like that until I, the Lord saved me. When the Lord saved me, my whole life changed.
1: I love to hear testimonies, Jack. Would you share how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ?
2: A friend of mine uh, that worked beside me in an engineering office that I was working in as a draftsman. He was a churchgoer. He had a good friend that had a bus route from Heritage Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas here. He said, You need to come with Curtis Prince to a church and come and visit with me there. And I said, Well, that'd be fine, but I don't know about riding the bus. And he said, Oh, it's, it's no problem. You'll have a good ride. It'll be pretty interesting. So I brought the whole family my wife and my daughter and And I got on the bus, rode to church, and I just kept on going after that. Curtis was real good about sharing the gospel with people. He was very much of an evangelist-type person. I learned the gospel from him, but I was kind of reluctant at first. But then one day I was just overwhelmed by the fact that I was just a lost sinner. I was just undone. I had no hope, and I begged the Lord to save me. I I just said, Lord, Lord, please save Please save me, and the Lord did. He saved me just as fast as he could, in a blink of an eye.
1: Well, praise God. Yeah, praise God. Well, I understand, Jack, that you have a science background, and you are a protege of sorts of Dr. Carl Baugh. Tell me about your background in creation science.
2: Well, after I got saved, I went to a college. My pastor told me that the best thing for me to do was to go up to a college in Chicago, Illinois, to Hiles Anderson College, mm-hmm. and he suggested that I go to school for education because I was good at math and science. And so I went up there, and I got under the influence of some really good math and science teachers that were also very much involved with trying to, to blend the science with the with Bible. And I learned a lot from them. And then when I came back to Little Rock, I taught in Christian school for three years, and then the Lord seemed to impress me that I need to go into more education because education is what's... You know education is power, you know, the power over the over the lives of people, because the more you know, the more influence you have, you can relate to people in different levels. So I went out there, and I started my master's degree in biology out at the Institute for Creation Research under Henry Morris.
0: Wow. Henry okay. Morris
2: was my teacher. George Gish was my teacher.
0: That's Gary Parker
2: was my teacher. I knew those men for three years. I worked under him. Henry Morris gave me some projects to do in hydrology because I was good at hydrology. And so I really learned a lot from those folks. So I went up to Washington State and stay with my in-laws up there. And then a pastor friend of mine called me from Charlotte, North Carolina, asked me to come over there to teach. So I came over to Charlotte and started teaching, and then I went back to school for a master's degree in education. And then I went back to school again for a master's degree in hydrology and geology. It was like eating candy. I couldn't stop after I ate the first one. I just had to keep on going, you know, so it was just one of those kind of things. But, yes, I got with Carl Ball because he and I seemed to have very, very similar religious beliefs and doctrinal beliefs. Matter of fact, I can't think of anything that he and I don't agree on biblically as far as that's concerned. And, of course, the geology part because I am a geologist and I got with him on the geology of the footprints down there and the dinosaur footprints and the human footprints, which I wrote an article on. Actually, I wrote a booklet on it that he uses right now in his museum down there as the definitive book that is being written on how the dinosaur and human footprints came to be together. And that was Billy
1: Caldwell and I. Well, Jack, I went to a secular university, and I was taught evolution. And when I became a Christian, when I got saved, I remember saying to God, I don't understand creation versus evolution, but I accept you, Lord, on faith. And then a couple of years later, somebody gave me a copy of Carl Baugh's book, Panorama of Creation. That thing changed my life. It opened my eyes to how creationism just makes sense. And then later, somebody gave me a copy of Henry Morris's The Genesis Record, and that blew my mind, too. Creation points to a creator, doesn't it?
2: Yes, sir. It points to a designer, a creator. You can't mistake the design in it. Galileo said mathematics is a language by which God wrote the universe. Meaning this, that everything you see in nature has a mathematical relationship to it. Math is in everything. Science is there. God is not only the God of the universe, he is the God of the science of the universe, he is the God of the language of creation. He is everything. He is the beginning point of all things, the first cause. Anytime you go to Origins, you have to see that he is the first cause of everything. If you can't see that, then you're not seeing the truth.
1: Well, Jack, congratulations on the book, The Pathways of the Creator. It is a fantastic study of Genesis 1 through 11. I mentioned in my opening that the first 11 chapters of Genesis greatly shape how you view the world. Do you agree that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are foundational?
2: Yes, sir. They're pivotal, no doubt about it. If you cannot believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then how can you believe the rest of the Bible? Right. I mean, if you can't believe one aspect of it, then how can you believe any of it? So if you can't believe all the things that it says, like you mentioned there, it's the beginning of all the things, political, scientific, religious, everything else. If you can't believe that, then how are you gonna have any basis at all in your life on believing anything to be the truth? Especially from a godly standpoint. You would be denying everything from the rest of your life if you couldn't believe those things and you couldn't put your foundation on something that was absolutely perfect.
1: You ride in the pathways of the Creator about men like Newton and Galileo who were scientists. Who are also believers. Despite what some people would have us believe, science is not anti God, correct?
2: Correct, absolutely. Science is not anti God. There are anti God scientists, but their science is not anti God. They just fail to recognize the God in it.
1: Well, isn't it true that real science never contradicts the Word of God?
2: Absolutely. The true science, real science never conflicts with the Word of God. That's an absolute truth. The Bible is not a science book. But everywhere that science is mentioned in the Bible, it is accurate. For instance, take Job. It says in Job that, were you there when I bound the stars of the Pleiades or loosed the bands of Orion? That's a very significant thing right there. For instance, about binding the stars of the Pleiades. We have always seen the seven stars of the Pleiades as being like the mini dipper, you know. But when it says that he bound them together like a necklace, of pearls in the heavens. We have just discovered in the past three years that those seven stars are gravitationally bound together, and God wrote it in the Bible 3,000 years ago, or 2,500 years ago if you took the book of Job. Isn't that incredible? Amazing. God put it there for us to see, and we just discovered it three years ago, that what God said 2,500 years ago is absolutely scientifically true.
1: Well, the Bible teaches that the Earth was much different before the flood of Noah than the planet we live on today. Let me read a verse for you. Genesis 1-7 reads, And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Now that verse speaks of this firmament. Tell me how the firmament or the canopy would have affected the conditions on the earth before the flood.
2: When we went out to ICR, Henry Morris was a proponent of the canopy theory saying that this verse implies that there was a vapor canopy or maybe a crystalline canopy Mm -hmm. of water vapor that surrounded the Earth. And this canopy actually was transparent, of course, because water vapor is transparent, and there's humidity in the atmosphere, and it's transparent. So it allowed light to come through, but it didn't let the harmful energy rays or uh, gamma rays and radiation come through. So it blocked those rays, but it allowed the full sunlight to come through. In like manner, it didn't allow the heat to be reflected away from the Earth. So it acted like a blanket, because, you know, believe it or not, if the Earth did not have a blanket covering that allowed, that kept the heat from escaping, and it didn't have a hot core, this would be a frozen ball in this darkness of space, mm-hmm. if it weren't for the light of the sun, and for the core that's heated up like this, that keeps it warm. We would not be able to live on this planet. So that's essentially what we're talking about there, as far as the water canopy vapor, and, and the waters below, you know, water was also trapped in the geology of the Earth below the Earth in the magma, and there was water on the surface and there was water above. So water was the first element, actually, of creation.
1: How would those greenhouse conditions before the flood affect plant and animal life on the earth?
2: It would cause an explosion of plant life because the two prime ingredients for plant life are carbon dioxide, gas, and moisture, and the sunlight, of course. You have to have sunlight for photosynthesis, and you need the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which there were probably twice as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere before the flood as there is now. There are various reasons for that, and there's actually some evidence for that in ice cores. But the atmosphere of the Earth and the conditions on the Earth before the flood were very conducive to extremely vigorous plant growth, as well as extremely vigorous animal population. The two worked hand in hand. It's what you call a biofeedback mechanism. They worked together.
1: Would that also help to explain the longevity of the lifespans that we see in the patriarchs in the Bible, those who were living before the flood who lived 900 years or so?
2: Yes, sir, it would. Another factor involved in that would be the fact that Adam and Eve were perfectly created, genetically created human beings. Their bodies and everything else that was created from God's plan, from his blueprint, Adam and Eve were put together with as best a design as you could make. Let's put it this way. If you were to build a Rolls-Royce, every part that goes into a Rolls-Royce is perfectly machined to where it fits exactly where it's supposed to. That's why Rolls-Royce can charge so much money for their cars, because they're so meticulous about the way they put them together. But when God put Adam and Eve together, every part was meticulously designed to the exact blueprint that God had set forth in his mind as far as what man was going to look like. So, yes... We had genetically perfect people. And when I say perfection, what I mean is the blueprint was accurate, right. exactly accurate. And it was passed on because we only had like eight generations or nine generations between Adam and Noah. Mm-hmm. And of course, God put that longevity in it's because there were no diseases that would cause us to age. There was no radiation in the environment that would cause us to age. Man was just a well-designed machine that God had made to last long enough to populate the world the way man did.
1: Jack, the Bible says that during Noah's flood, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Doesn't that explain the end of the canopy and wasn't much of the geography of our world today created by that sudden catastrophic event?
2: Yes, sir. I wrote a statement in my book this way. the flood was like taking a pile of dirty garments and putting them into a washing machine and turning the washing machine on, and then the spin cycle would go around and spin and all be mixed together. And when you put the garments in, they looked one way, but when you open the machine lid up and you see how they are after they're spun twice or so, you know, and dried out and all that sort of thing, they don't look anything like they did when you put them in the machine. They're all twisted together. They're all wrapped around each other. They're all in just a conglomeration. It's not recognizable from what the original was. If you were to look a picture of what the world was like before the flood and what the world is like after the flood, you would not be able to recognize the difference. The only person that saw the difference was Noah and his family. Nobody else knows the difference between the two. Noah did, and so did Shem, Ham, and David.
1: You write in the Pathways of the Creator that there was one continent during the time of the pre-flood world. Would you explain, for those who are not familiar with that idea, would you explain Pangea?
2: A German scientist and also a Frenchman saw the map of the world and postulated in their mind by saying that, well, if you were to kind of crunch everything together here, these continents would all fit together really pretty well. Like the part of South America that sticks out into the Atlantic Ocean fits right into that little place in Africa where it goes in and becomes part of where the Gold Coast is and that sort of thing, Liberia and all that. So it just kind of fits right together there. The coastline of the United States fits right up against Spain and Europe, and it all kind of just jams right up together there. And really what you're talking about is only one great separation actually is North America, South America, Africa, and Europe. The rest of the world actually is pretty much connected together. If you talk about Asia, the Middle East, the Far East, Africa, it's all pretty much still connected. The only thing that's not connected there is Australia and some of the islands in the Pacific, which all kind of shifted up into where the southern tip of Africa is. Really the big separation was between the North America and South America and Africa and Europe. And the Bible says pretty clearly that God brought all the seas together in one place and he caused the dry land to appear out of one place. So this idea of Pangea, which came from a German scientist, actually pan meaning together and Gia meaning earth. It really does work that way. When you look at a map you can see quite easily that it was together. And we have a lot of evidence that it was together because the mountains of the Appalachians actually are the same rock formation as the mountains of Scotland, and also the mountains of Morocco, which are the Atlas Mountains, all fit right into the same rock formations, the same geologic formations as we have in the Appalachians. So the two mountain ranges, we can pretty well assume that they were together at one time. And this would explain why when God brought all the animals to Noah, they had to come from all corners of the earth. Mm -hmm. Well, if they were separated by water, how could they all come together to the Ark without having to cross the ocean 3,600 miles, which separates? America from Europe right now, how could they cross that gap 3,600 miles? And they brought them together in a short period of time. So they all had to be able to walk from where they were to where the ark was. That's another good reason why it had to be one in common.
1: This is James Collins, and my guest today on Watchman on the Wall is Jack Fleming, the author of The Pathways of the Creator. Jack, God willing, we'll continue this conversation next time. Thanks so much for being on Watchman on the Wall with me today.
2: You're quite welcome, James. Thank you, sir.
0: Jack Fleming will continue his discussion on the Pathways of the Creator on our next Watchman on the Wall program. Today, Jack Fleming's book, Pathways of the Creator, is our featured resource. Starting from a scientific viewpoint, Jack Fleming has written a systemic analysis of the meaning of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Written from the conviction that these first 11 chapters are truly historical, Fleming's narrative draws on the biblical text and scientific evidence to affirm a young earth perspective, a six-day creation, the universality of the flood, and more. Order Pathways of the Creator today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can always order online SWRC. Dot com. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargemino, has some serious concerns over the doctrine of Calvinism. He feels the doctrine is dangerous and wrong. Dr. Spargemino comes now to share why he feels this way.
1: Southwest Radio Ministries is a prophetic ministry. But we have always had a focus on contending for the faith. And we here are excited about a new project that Pastor Larry has been working on that God willing should be available in the next few weeks. The title of the book is "Calvinism on Trial: This Tulip Has Thorns." Pastor Larry is here with me today. Pastor Larry, welcome to the Watchman
3: on the Wall." Well, it's always a delight to have you as the host and me as the guest. It's a real privilege. Well, Pastor Larry,
1: I'm excited about this book. We talked briefly about it in the past, but for those who are not familiar with the term tulip, would you run through the meaning and significance of tulip and the importance that the Calvinists place on that doctrine
3: well the t in tulip stands for total depravity meaning that the will the conscience and the moral faculties of man have been annihilated in other words no one can have faith in christ unless they're first regenerated in the calvinistic system regeneration precedes faith now i don't believe the bible teaches that but they have to have that because if we have free will and they deny that we have free will then, of course, I can make a choice for Christ. And if I don't make that choice, I'm culpable. But in the Calvinistic system, there's no such a thing as free will. We pointed out in the other program that, yes, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but death in the Bible does not mean that we have no moral faculties. It doesn't mean that we are insensate. Even when Adam sinned, what happened? Now, he was a fallen sinner but he hid from God. Why did he hide from God? Because his conscience told him that he messed up bad. So right there, that early example in the book of Genesis shows us that man still has a conscience. Man can still hear God's voice and God can still speak to man. And I think that comes through very clearly in the word of God.
1: So if God unconditionally elects some to be saved, he is automatically unconditionally electing others. All of the others to be damned. And personally, I find that distasteful. To be quite frank, it's a misrepresentation of the God of the Bible. That's not the God who sent his Son into the world to take our sins
3: upon himself. Well, if God so chose, he could have chosen to save everybody. But since he didn't choose to save everybody, he, like you said, necessarily chose to damn to hell all others who are none of the elect. So, If I'm a fireman and I respond to a house fire in which there are six people, and circumstances are such that I could rescue all six, but if I rescue only three and leave the other three to perish, I'm personally responsible for the deaths of the three. And you know, no amount of persuasion will convince me that Calvinistic doctrine reflects what the Bible teaches. First John four, verse eight says, God is love. Are we talking about the same God? We've looked at the T in
1: Tulip, and we've looked at the U. Let's look at the L. Doesn't that stand for limited atonement?
3: Yes, it does stand for limited atonement, and that means that the design of the atonement is limited to the elect. In other words, Jesus only died for the elect. So, since God only chose some to be saved, why would Jesus die for everyone? Calvinists would point out that we don't have a divided trinity, If God only chose some to be saved, then Jesus only died for those whom he elected for salvation. Now, you know, I should point out that there are a lot of Calvinists who have some reservations on limited atonement. Believe it or not, even John Calvin believed in a universal atonement. It was his followers who added limited atonement. Charles Haddon Spurgeon believed in limited atonement. He was a five-point Calvinist. But in some of his messages, he speaks like he doesn't believe it. And in the book, I give several examples, and they're amazing examples. And actually, some of Spurgeon's enemies called him an Arminian, although he said he supported limited atonement.
1: Well, Dr. Larry, as you were speaking, there's a verse that comes to mind, 1 John 2.2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. James, please read that verse again. (laughs) And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the
3: whole world. That's from 1 John 2.2. What don't we understand about those words? I mean, what more could God say? If that verse is obscure, what does God have to do to get his message across? God wants people saved, quote, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33 tells us, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And that's one of the issues I have with Calvinists. There's some verses that are so clear, they scream at you and they go through, I guess I'd call it hermeneutical gyrations to get around that. They've got to have God completely sovereign, that God hates some people. I have a problem with that. I mean, let's face it. For God so loved the world. And, you know, the world is the world. The world is not the elect. The world is not only a few. We can sing. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Amen.
1: Pastor Larry, we've spoken about this before, and it's very sad. Calvinists come and split churches. Churches go from successful, thriving ministries to the frozen chosen to just a few people. Calvinists want to argue. They want to debate. The church becomes a battle zone. And instead of reading the Bible and praising the Lord, they're reading John Calvin's writings, Calvin's institutes, and they're challenging people with the question, for whom did Christ die? So I'm excited about this book. Looking forward to it. The title is Calvinism on Trial. This Tulip Has Thorns by Dr. Larry spargemino We look forward to it. I'm excited about your writing ministry, Dr. Larry. Thank you, James.
0: Today, our featured resources are the books Pathways of the Creator by Jack Fleming and The Secret Doorway by Paul Hutchins. Both books are excellent resources for your personal study and growth. Order both books today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we continue our journey through the ages on the pathways of the Creator with author Jack Fleming. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit SWRC.com. That's SWRC.com.